This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. It is a joy to be with you today. Morning stars, I'll be back up uh, so that you can see us and we can all have our community together. But I want you to go to WCPT820.com and stream us and AM950radio.com and stream us. Um, I want to, I want you to come to the Peace Summit. We're going to be focusing on that. The Peace Summit at Rainbow Push. Pastor Stephen Thurston will be up with us in a couple of minutes. He's going to be participating. And others all around the country. Jewish Voice for Peace. If not now, uh, Reverend Dr. Cornell West will be speaking on Friday. Uh, State Senator Nina Turner, James Zogley, Reverend Jesse Jackson is convening it. It is going to be something, and we've got hundreds upon hundreds of people who are calling all the time, all the time. Um, And we want you to be there. You can, of course, join us virtually, but there's something about Pastor Pastor Thurston, before I go to the headlines, isn't there something about being in physical community with people, just seeing each other right now? Yeah, there's an energy and vibe. We're able to bounce off of each other that you just can't get in, you know, like in, the, in the digital space. It's it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we're going to yeah. be doing. And Pastor Thurston will be there. You'll be able to put a face to all of these <laughs> names and a person to all of these people on the radio. So I need you to, to call us at 773-FREEDOM. You don't have to register. Just show up. We had Mr. Fayez. Uh, calling yesterday, Palestinian American who had been listening to the show, and he was so moved, he just shared his family story because he still has family over there. But then we have friends who who are in Jerusalem. We have friends who are in Tel Aviv. We want peace there. We want a ceasefire. Period. And not just a ceasefire. We want peace. We want justice. Remember, Palestinian justice is married to Israeli security. You're not going to have one without the other, and we're going to be talking about that. Friday and Saturday, and a plan to move forward, a plan to move forward. Only 11% of the Congress have signed on to the ceasefire resolution, but more than 60% of Americans want the ceasefire. What's the gap? Money. You know, that's what it is. And so let's talk about that. I want you to call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. But I also want you to talk today. Of course, John Nichols will be talking about the summit. He's one of the conveners as well. Uh, it's a disturbing, well, it's something that you kind of knew, but the quiet part is now being said out loud. CNN has admitted to what some people are calling a disturbing quote, unquote, um, practice in their coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They pass things through their Jerusalem Bureau, but the Jerusalem Bureau cannot get stories out unless the IDF and the Israeli government approve of them. And they've had a decidedly pro-Israeli, anti-Palestinian slant, and it has been ongoing for years. It has been ongoing for years. So what do you think about that? I mean, I've always been very concerned when I've seen reporters embedded with any army because only you're only going to get their story. But the Palestinian journalists, and you cannot get into the Palestinian territories, Gaza and West Bank, unless 
uh, you get permission from Israel, and they're not allowing anyone in. And those journalists who have been reporting, uh, they're being killed. The Palestinian journalists and the journalists who've been reporting the Palestinian side have been killed, more than 30 of them. And now, indeed, uh, their professional organizations are appealing to UNESCO, to the United Nations, to protect them. Let's talk about that. 773-763-9278-773-763-WCPT. Go ahead, Michigan. They are the college champions, everybody. Hey, hooray, hooray, hooray. They won the college football playoff national championship. The top-ranked Wolverines capped an undefeated season with a 34-13 victory over the number two Washington Huskies last night in Houston. The win gives Michigan its first national championship since 1997 and brings an end to an eventful season that included a signal-stealing scandal. Donald Trump will attend a court hearing today on his January 6th immunity claims. He argues that a former president cannot be prosecuted for actions that took place while in office. His appearance at the appeals court is voluntary and strategic. If he succeeds, it could bar prosecutors from charging him for his role in the 2021 Capitol attack of January 6th. But any decision will probably land in the Supreme Court. What will the Supreme Court decide? United Airlines found loose bolts in their grounded-going jets. Wow. Over 100 Alaska and United planes are being inspected after a terrifying midair blowout last week. Some of the bolts needed additional tightening. Wow. It raises questions about possible systematic problems with the Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet. Hundreds of flights were canceled yesterday. As inspections continued, a dangerous storm is sweeping the nation, everybody. The system is moving from the plains where we are into the central and eastern states. It could deliver blizzards, flooding, and strong winds today. Be careful, everybody. An explosion injured at least 21 people in a Fort Worth hotel. And bottled water contains thousands of tiny pieces of plastic. Ugh. Be careful, you think. And, you know, Dick Gregory, Pastor, <laughs> Pastor Stephen Thurston, told us about this bottle of water. He said, don't trust it. Remember that? Oh, my he gosh. <laughs> he did. He's been saying it. Dick Gregory lives. We love that man. Um, of course, in Chicago, we're going to have high 36 degrees. It will be a mixture of rain and snow. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 30 degrees and cloudy in the NFL. The wild card season begins this weekend. In the NBA, the Bulls 119, the Hornets 113. The Timberwolves will be meeting the Magic tonight. In the NHL, the Oilers will be playing Chicago and the Stars were triumphant over the wild. In fact, they shut them out four to nothing and those are the headlines. Pastor Stephen Thurston, before we get into the good news, you're going to be participating in this peace summit. Can you just quickly tell us why, and let me just a little background for people. Uh, when Dr. King was alive, the National Baptist Convention was the seminal convention for black Protestants in the United States, the largest religious organization in the country, millions upon millions. In fact, Dr. Joseph Jackson, who was here, um, headed the National Baptist Convention. Well, when Dr. King became active in, in the social issues like Jesus, uh, the National Baptist Convention was in turmoil, and they wanted Dr. King out, and they ended up splitting and creating the Progressive Baptist. 
and no family has been more prominent in the Progressive Baptist Convention movement than Pastor Stephen Thurston's family. Indeed, his father is the former president of that, and the Progressive Baptist Convention is, indeed, the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker and um, Joe, Dr. Joe Lowry and, and Reverend Abernathy and Reverend James Bevel and Reverend Jackson and so many people. My father, although he was very young in his ministry, you know, they had to create another organization because many people, you know, Reverend Thurston, there's still pushback in the church on social issues. And that's why we've got this feel good gospel today. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, I'm participating in this space because I recognize that neighbor is not a geographic term. It's a moral concept. And too many people fail to recognize that everybody is our neighbor. And the conflict that we see taking place in the Middle East is a clear example of this. It has turned into what... Uh, it's genocide. Let's just be honest. It's genocide that we see taking place, and that's morally wrong. And we have to stand up against that and raise the spotlight on it, expose the fake news and the fake narrative. I just watched a preacher on Sunday mishandle the Bible to try to justify what's taking place. That's wrong. And the way people were cheering and celebrating, it was, oh, God, it literally broke my heart to see that. Like, why are you mm -hmm. putting this poison in people's minds? And so it takes those of us who are going to be truth tellers to stand up, to raise the awareness, to continue to fight back against the false narratives with the truth and raise the moral consciousness of people uh, to speak truth to power about what's taking place and what needs to take place in terms of ceasefire. Amen. I mean, got to do it. You see, Pastor, uh, you see, Pastor, that uh, uh, President Joe Biden was at the historic church in South Carolina where they had the slaughter several years ago. And some people started shouting ceasefire and the congregation responded four more years. I was like, wait a minute, what? Right. Hold on. Wait, there's something off here. So, you know, we've got way a lot off. of work to do. Yes, ma'am. Oh, way off, way off. Got a lot of work to do. Well, you know what? What is the good news? We need it. <laughs> but and every Friday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, you can catch him on Facebook. Come on, everybody. Just go on over there. You know it's your therapy. Come on. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. You think I'm kidding? I'm not laughing. Yeah. I know I need it. You just go on with it. That's all right. I, I know I need my therapy. I, I'm not going to front. Yes, <laughs> What's on your mind today? Yeah. As we start this new year, I want to remind people to stop lying. <laughs> no, no, now, there we go. Come on. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's often the case that when we encounter someone who is deceptive, our natural response is to feel anger, distrust, or mistrust towards them. Uh, we'll, we'll then label this individual as a dishonest person and limit our dealings and interactions with them because we view them as a dishonorable person. And while dishonesty is a trait we have no problem pointing out in other people, here's the problem. Many of us fail to acknowledge that same trait within ourselves. We're not having mirror moments, Santita. Uh, and if you just said to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm not one of those people Pastor Thurston is talking about because I don't lie to myself. Well, this segment is just for you because you just, in fact, lied to yourself. 
the reality is that most of us define ourselves by collective public opinion. Yeah, what other people think about us kind of helps to frame what we think about ourselves. Thus, we're really disconnected from our true selves and not wanting to face who we really are. Denial, rationalization, projection, and emotional reason become embedded within the fabric of our lives. We lie to ourselves seeking comfort. In the paradigm of lies, we can avoid facing the hard truth. We lie to ourselves because it's convenient. Because we can then continue our routine and patterns uninterrupted. We lie to ourselves to feel better about ourselves because we're afraid of the truth as well as the unknown. And so the lie preserves our self-esteem, even if it's just a facade. We lie to ourselves to avoid responsibility because we feel that we can ignore our choices and the corresponding consequences. Let's look at some of the warning signs that would indicate that you're guilty of lying to yourself, just in case I still got somebody that's struggling with accepting this fact. Number one, do you justify all of your behavior? Number two, you maybe wear rose-tinted glasses. Number three, you have a constant sense that you're running away from something. Does you feel inauthentic? Number four, your heart contradicts your mind. Number five, you avoid others' advice, especially when it's amazing advice that would radically shift your life in the positive. Number six, you seek popularity instead of authenticity. Number seven, you seek distractions to escape the real stuff. Number eight, you seek familiar, even though you know that you can't grow from there. Number nine, You try to fit yourself into a mold that actually hurts you while you're contorting yourself. Number 10, you deny your passions and fail to pursue what excites you. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Have you been guilty of any of that? If that's the case, you've been lying to yourself. And honesty is paramount for your success, your happiness, and your self-esteem. So, Let's take some steps to stop lying to ourselves as we've stepped into this brand new year. Here's what I want you to do. Detach yourself from the fantasy you've engaged and or are living in the past. Take some risk. Try some new stuff, some different stuff. Step outside of the bounds of the comfort zone that you've been sequestered in. Face the music, even when it hurts. I promise you, the truth is much better than a lie. And then disconnect from those who don't share your values. These are four steps that you can take to stop lying to yourself. Because being honest with yourself will aid you in developing the passion you need to excel in life. Honesty, it provides clarity, which helps you to remain focused. And if you're hiding truth from yourself, it's hard to believe that you'll be truthful with other people. Relationships that are healthy, happy, and balanced are comprised of people in touch with their inner selves. So again, my challenge and my charge as we kick off this brand new year is stop lying, most importantly to yourself. And when you change what's within, that empowers you to change what's around, and you'll find yourself not lying to everybody else because you stopped it with yourself. I hope you enjoyed this. Hope you got something from it, and I hope you're going to leave from this today not lying anymore. 
Well, you know, hold on, because I think that a lot of lies that we've been saying to telling ourselves institutionally are now coming apart. It seems mm-hmm. like we're living in a an era of truth. I mean, whatever people say about Donald Trump, yeah, whatever people say about Donald Trump, he's an honest moment. Oh, that's not America. This is not who we are. I'm like, yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so was the President Biden, who said that as a senator, I hang out with the segregationists. I'm good with it. <laughs> that's a truthful moment. I, I, I mean, it's just like everybody. Let's be honest. I think that's the only way. I mean, because, you know, I know when I was in college, I was dishonest about what it is that I wanted. Because I was so, I was hell-bent really on pleasing my mother. Because I wanted to, you know, make her feel great, blah, blah, blah. And I subjugated myself. And the only person who I ultimately hurt was me. Mm -hmm. That's right. As a a mature person... You know, hey, my my parents defied their parents and got married because I was on the way. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I'm just—it's truth time. Let's be honest you about being it. Honest. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and I mean, my father laughed. You know, you were the guest of honor at the wedding, so okay. You know, but my parents were like, "No, this is what we're going to do, and that—that's it." And I think, you know, we are not honest about who we are. I have a friend who is, everybody knows he's gay. I mean, people who observe, but he can't admit it, and he can at times just be awful. Just awful. Because it's like, man, you're unhappy. You know, I mean, what? I mean, there are other people, you know, you're you're going to a job you hate. You're miserable. Yeah. Oh. I, the last minute belongs to you. I mean, how do we gather up the courage? To, yeah, we, to we've got to dive thing. into. Yeah, we've got to dive into what's driving us to lie. What is it that we're ashamed of, afraid of? What happened to us that's pushed us to this place where we feel that we have to continue a false narrative and false facade? And it's often normally something small and something that we can overcome. And it may require some therapy, some counseling. Just talking to a friend who's going to be honest with you to help you to step over and past that boundary so that you can come to grips with who and what you really are and then take the steps to do the work to adjust and address that issue so that you can leave the lies behind, live in your authenticity. And I believe you'll see your world blossom and open up because now you've set this boundary within your own life. And boundaries, I believe, are linchpins to blessings. When we've got appropriate Amen. boundaries in place in all areas of our lives, we can flourish. And so that boundary needs to put in, be put in place. I'm not going to lie to myself. I'm not going to lie about my situation. I'm going to face it. And then from there, I'm going to grow and develop and become the best version of myself for myself and for the world around me. Mm. Come on, everybody. And now, do it personal, personally. Now, let's do it for the world. Let's talk yes. about CNN. <laughs> Nothing that you get out of Israel comes from CNN unless the Israelis and the IDF have approved it. Now, we did that during the Iraq War. We embedded soldiers with, with our battalions. I mean, how are you going to get to the truth? Come on, y'all. we got to do better than this. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show on WCPT at AM 950 Radio. Just a minute. 
This is the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. Call me at 773. Call us at 773-763-9278-773-763. WCPT, and let's talk about the coverage of this conflict in the Middle East. Have we been getting the truth? Well, no. CNN has admitted in an Intercept article to what some people are calling a disturbing policy. That has been in place for years, we find out, in which all stories about Israel must come from their Jerusalem Bureau. Okay, fair enough. But then the Jerusalem Bureau has to give the stories over to the IDF and the Israeli government. They must pass muster with them in order to get back to the United States and to the rest of the world. So what do you think about that, everybody? What do you think about that? They run the Gaza coverage in particular right now past their Jerusalem team who are operating under the shadow of the IDF censor. That is the headline in The Intercept. Uh, They've long had this practice in place. What do you think about that? I mean, U.S. corporate media... um, they have had this relationship, well, they have these relationships with these status quo governments, and we're only getting that side. And many in corporate media in the United States, or those who've been formerly with corporate media, are very, very critical. Dan Cohen, who is a noted U.S. journalist, said CNN is explicitly acting as a propaganda mouthpiece for, as he put it, the genocidal Zionist regime. Photojournalist Zach Roberts said what CNN is doing here is creating additional B-roll for the IDF. It's nothing resembling news, and the employees who participate in it are not resembling journalists. So what do you think about that, everybody? Israel does not allow foreign journalists into Gaza unless they're embedded with the IDF, and it, but those who are not embedded with the IDF have been meeting really the ultimate sad fate. At least 31 journalists, Palestinian journalists, have been killed trying to cover this conflict and get out another perspective. And uh, UNESCO, the United Nations, has been asked to intervene and protect these journalists who are not embedded with the IDF. Let us talk about it. I want you to call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. I want to we have a tremendous panel to talk with us about this today. Historian from the University of Arizona, Dr. David Gibbs. Ari Bloomcat, executive editor of In These Times magazine. And I'm going to start with you, Bryce. Green from Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And everybody, we're, we're going to be talking about these issues and more at the Peace Summit and Rainbow Push. You can participate virtually on Friday and Saturday, but we really want you to be in person. You don't want to miss Cornell West. He's going to be there on Friday speaking. You don't want to miss Senator Nina Turner. You don't want to miss James Dogby. You don't want to miss, you don't want to miss, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss meeting each other. So, Bryce, what about this coverage? What about this it's not new. It's been in place for years, Bryce. 
Right. Well, you know, observers of the media coverage of Gaza have been saying this for quite some time. And it doesn't just apply to CNN, but also other major media organizations, NBC, CBS, uh, MSNBC. We've seen them uh, repeatedly cover Israel in a way that's friendly to the IDF, that's friendly to the regime there, that doesn't question the assumptions about what Hamas is or or the feasibility of removing Hamas. They don't question the assumptions that Israel is saying that it's carrying out targeted strikes, despite uh, enormous evidence to the contrary. They don't question all this. What they do is uh, that they'll get IDF spokespeople on or Israeli spokespeople on. Um, You'll see some light pushback, but the overwhelming frame of any segment that includes them is friendly to the Israeli government. It's friendly to uh, their point of view that uh, it doesn't matter how many civilians are being killed as long as we remove the terrorists. Uh, and we've seen that with uh, not just CNN, but also the New York Times and uh, in coverage that is uh, deferential to the IDF, that doesn't uh, challenge the uh, anonymous statements of IDF intelligence officials or Mossad officials. Uh, we've seen... Uh, All all of these different examples of this coverage, but the new revelations from The Intercept about CNN take it to a whole new level. We talk about in America how we have a free press here, um, but it seems that there is an exception for that in the case of Palestine. And it seems that they go even further as to actively having their content censored by the Israeli military. Now, if we were looking at this objectively, if we saw a news outlet operating in America... And they would go back to uh, the Russian government, for example, and get their coverage approved when they when they talk about Ukraine. Uh, The American public would see that for what it is immediately. They would see that as an infringement on the rights of audience to audiences to be informed about the source of their news. They would see that as an abridgment of any pretense to free speech. But when it comes to Israel, it seems that there's a lot more leeway. Uh, There's a lot more leeway on a lot of things. There's a, uh, the Israelis can kill journalists by the hundred, uh, whereas uh, outlets like CNN will focus on, uh, well, they'll focus on uh, the the purported crimes of the people who are uh, getting bombed. Uh, they'll say that, oh, well, the IDF says that there was a terrorist here. The IDF says that there was a terrorist there. They don't actually go and investigate. Uh, it, the overwhelming effect is to have the American media apparatus to be a propaganda uh, mouthpiece for the Israeli Defense Forces. And this is really important to the Israelis because America, of course, is paying the bills in all this campaign. If the American public starts to get a realistic point of view of the conflict, then support for Israel might start to erode. If they start seeing reality, well, then they might start calling on Israel to restrain itself. They might start calling on international law to apply. But as long as the propaganda mill is being... Uh, propped up at CNN, and as long as the Israelis are having a say in what gets covered, well, then that dramatically reduces the chances of unfavorable portrayals to the American public. And if you look at what Israelis say uh, in uh, in their meetings in uh, the cabinet level, they, they understand that America and affecting public opinion in America is one of their top strategic objectives, because they wouldn't be able to operate without that sort of consent from Big Brother. Hmm. 
let's say you are a Zoom cat. I mean, you are a journalist. Um, and we saw in during the Iraq conflict, I mean, this isn't new now. One of the things that was unsettling to me was watching U.S. journalists or journalists embedded with, you know, with our armed forces. I said, okay, now what story are they going to tell? What do you make of this story, Ari? Well, good morning, Santita, and uh, good morning, everyone else. You know, I think that one of the things that stands out to me so much here is that CNN doesn't have to do that. They what do you actually mean? go, well, a lot of other outlets just run stories through their desks outside of Israel. CNN chooses to actively run these things through their Jerusalem Bureau, which runs them through the center. CNN actively chooses to hire someone who is a spokesperson or had been a spokesperson for the IDF to a position where they are producing tons of content. And as The Intercept points out, some of that content is basically just press releases from the IDF. These are choices that CNN is making. And in so many ways, these choices that CNN is making is to reduce the number of civilian casualties that are reported out of Gaza. And we see that in a number of ways as well. We've seen directives from CNN officials to journalists about what language they should use and not use around deaths, around the count of deaths of civilians. And this is something that CNN has done consistently in the past as well. We saw this in the war in Afghanistan as well. And it's really quite horrifying in so many ways, because if it wasn't so problematic already that this just exists, that the censor exists and it's so problematic already, it's absolutely abhorrent and horrifying that CNN goes out of their way to do this. And the hypocrisy involved in it is pretty outstanding. You know, if you think about what CNN's mission statement is, what they claim to be as a news organization, you know, they call themselves truth seekers. They say that their mission is to inform, engage, and empower the world. They say that their mission is to bear witness to history as it unfolds. That's language that, you know, really sort of highlights how hypocritical CNN is being as a news organization. And CNN's extremely powerful. They're huge. And they hold a ton of weight and in many ways could go in a number of different directions here. And the fact that they are intentionally choosing to obfuscate the truth, to go through processes that do that, tells us a whole lot about the role of corporate media right now, tells us a whole lot about mainstream media, and at the same time, tells us a whole lot about the importance of independent media in this moment, tells us a whole lot about the efforts of at least 80 journalists right now who have been murdered in Gaza. And these efforts by these journalists in Gaza, these efforts by independent media across the world to try and bring the truth of what is happening in Gaza, to try and bring the truth of what is happening in the West Bank, 
you know, really highlights the importance of those outlets um, right now that are doing like really heroic work. Well, what do you make of these journal- journalists who are not embedded with the IDF who are being killed? There's a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just, um, you know, it's deeply, deeply saddening um, and horrifying. And, you know, we've seen reports from many of these journalists that, you know, every morning they wake up and when they leave their homes to uh, to go do their work, um, they don't know if it's going to be the last time they see their family. And, you know, a critical question here is like, okay, so if you knew that this might be the last time you see your family, you know, why would you keep doing this work? Why would you keep trying to do your journalism? And the answer resoundingly over and over again is because it's those journalists who are determined to be truth seekers. It is those journalists who are determined to bear witness to history as it is unfolding. It is those journalists who refuse to let a genocide occur in Gaza, in their communities, in their places where they're living, and not be covered, and that truth not be told. And, you know, we owe those journalists so much. And I was at a gathering with a large number of community journalists at the Reynolds Journalism Institute uh, in Columbia, um, you know, not too, too long ago. And at that gathering of community center journalists, we talked about, okay, so given that so many of these journalists in Gaza are dying, given that so many of these journalists are journalists who are dying covering their communities, what is our responsibility as journalists after their death? And one of the things that I think is really key here is that our responsibility as journalists after their death is to fight for what they fought for, to fight for what they died for and believed in so much. And that is to make sure that the world sees this genocide for what it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gibbs, you are a professor. You are an historian. I mean, you have to depend upon journalists, I think, to some degree at least, for, to get the information that you teach. What yes. does this mean when you see this practice that they admit has been in place for years. I mean, do you have to do forensics on what you've been teaching? I mean, how does that work? Well, one of the things one of the things I emphasize uh, to my students is that uh, we have a weird, bizarre situation in the United States that's been going on uh, since the beginning, at least since the beginning of the Cold War, which is that we have the First Amendment, which says the press is free to report anything it wants. And the government cannot coerce it to report one way or the other way. Um, and that they're free to criticize not just U.S. foreign policy, but also the foreign policies and actions of America's allies, including Israel and also Ukraine. Um, the, the remarkable thing is the press does not act as if it we're free. The press acts pretty much as a um, mouthpiece for U.S. foreign policy and also the foreign policies of America's allies, including Israel. Um, it's a remarkable thing, really, that we have a free press, legally free press. Um, the government, as far as I'm aware, does not regularly coerce, you know, um, media institutions to report one way or the other way. It's legally forbidden to do so. And yet the media act as if 
they were not free, and they, they act as if they were spokespeople for U.S. foreign policy. Um, yeah, what has to be noted here in terms of the context of the Israel-Gaza war is that Israel is one of America's key allies. The U.S. is backing Israel to the hilt. The U.S. is funding Israel. The U.S. is enabling this whole process, despite mild criticisms here and there. The U.S. is doing nothing to restrain Israel, as far as the public record shows. And, uh, you know, the press sees it as its obligation to back up U.S. foreign policy. And they certainly act that way. Um, and that extends, in this case, to America's allies, to Israel. Um, and so, um, you know, just as the press, um, you know, doesn't report anything the U.S. government doesn't want, so it doesn't report anything Israel doesn't want to be reported. And we're seeing that very clearly here, um, spelled out in detail in the Intercept article. And none of this should surprise anybody, really, because we've been this has been going on for decades, as I said. And the same thing is going on, I think, even more overtly with regard to Ukraine. A lot of the reporting we're getting from Ukraine very openly comes from Ukrainian sources, the Ukrainian government. Uh, Ukraine is a U.S. ally, just as with Israel. The United States is backing Ukraine. They're also an interested party. It's not as if they're objective sources. They're the opposite of objective sources. They have an interest in lying. And, of course, they use that interest, and they do lie. And for some reason, the press treats them as if they were the Delphic Oracle. Uh, this is true, again, both the Ukrainian government and with the Israeli government. And, uh, you know, they act as if uh, these are trusted sources, when obviously they should not be trusted sources. So we have um, a very strange thing where the U.S. media simply um, has the opportunity to report critically, but it doesn't do so. It sees itself and acts as if it were simply an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy. Do you, is that dangerous? I mean, what does that do to us, Dr. Gibbs? Well, it's undemocratic. It, it basically means that we can get foreign policy constructed by a, a narrow elite, um, which is how it's done, which is how a lot of people think it should be done. It excludes the public. Uh, it pulls the wool over the eyes of the public. I mean, one of the problems you have here is that not that many people know what's going on in Gaza. It's very hard to get good information as to what's going on in Gaza. If you're working, let's say, behind a cash register at a Walmart, you don't have time to dig into all sorts of alternative sources. You don't have time or necessarily also the training to know how to vet sources in terms of what's reliable and what's not reliable. And so you rely on mainstream sources. If you get any information at all, it'll probably come from places like CNN because it's easiest. that's the easiest thing to do. It takes less time. And again, if you're working 40 hours a week, you know, taking care of kids and so on, that's, that's a reasonable attitude. Um, so there's an obligation on a, you know, institutions like CNN to properly inform people. Yet I don't think that's how they see their, their role. I think they see the role as to back up U.S. foreign policy and to make sure that U.S. foreign policy stays on course and that the public is not equipped to interfere with that course. Um, you know, there's a theory in international relations, realism, which takes the view the public is, is cut out and should be cut out of um, – foreign policy making, and that foreign policy should be handled by an elite. Um, you know, if you look at um, the academic literature on this, a lot of it is more or less overtly anti-democratic. The public should not be included in foreign policy making. Uh, you know, there's even a tradition that lying to the public, deceiving the public is a good thing, not a bad thing. Well, I think that's how the press sees it, and that's certainly how they're acting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so where do we go from here, Bryce? I mean, we see the quiet part has been said out loud. If you just step back and look at CNN's coverage, and if you look at our coverage overall, I mean, it's like the journalists have become transcribers 
I mean, there's no back and forth truly in the press conferences at the White House. <laughs> you know, you are an outlaw and an outlier if you ask questions. And now we see the only way you can get into uh, get into Gaza and get into these Palestinian territories is to be embedded. How, how, how is the American public supposed to come up with 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 the right conclusion when they're not getting the full story. And as Dr. Gibbs points out, look, they're only, I only have 24 hours in a day. If you're asking me to do too much to, to, to dig with this truth, why scream? Well, that's the, really the name of the game. When you have a media ecosystem that can't be trusted at face value, especially when it comes to foreign policy, especially when it comes to the issue of Israel and Palestine, well, then what's the average American supposed to do? You know, I had, I had a friend ask me uh, about what's going on. You know, they don't really trust the uh, the dominant narratives of the media, rightly so, uh, but they don't have uh, hours and hours a day to read dozens of articles. Uh, they don't have the... You know the the desire to wake up every morning and uh, look at uh, different news sources to see what they're saying, compare them, uh, look at aggregators. No, no one seriously has the time for that. So how are they supposed to make sense of the world in that environment? Well, the only answer for that is independent media. Uh, if we are able to create and build and sustain those institutions that are able to. Uh, put together a reasonable view of the world in a uh, easily digestible way, uh, then I think most people will uh, appreciate that. The the problem of the larger media ecosystem is a deep one, uh, right? Most of our information, even even if we're critics of the mainstream media system, of the, uh, of the corporate uh, governance of our country, even if we're critical of that, most of our information comes from these corporate media entities. Even the knowledge that we know about, uh, uh, you know, some of the more embarrassing aspects of uh, the Israeli campaign and uh, and the more embarrassing and deadly aspects of American foreign policy, we know this because they're reported to the, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN. Even if they do, uh, even if they do produce facts that are inconvenient to the empire, those facts quickly get suppressed. But it seems like they're the only institutions in town with the connections and the uh, the capacity to produce that sort of information. Uh, it's not like we can send, uh, uh, you know, the Santita Jackson, so bureau chief in the Middle East, uh, to go get quotes from, uh, you know, the Israeli embassy or the uh, the Lebanese embassy. Like we, there is no capacity for that. So the question of how we build out these media systems uh, is an important one. And I don't think anyone has the real answer to that. Can we do it through uh, reader-supported funding models? Uh, can we challenge and match and be comparable to these giant corporations if we stay away from the, uh, the corporate funders? Uh, I don't know about that. But something's clear is that something has to change if we're going to have any sort of hope for real, genuine democratic movement, real, genuine opposition to the corporatocracy, real, genuine opposition to the empire. Uh, it requires people to understand and have the uh, the tools to figure out the world. Wow. Yes. I mean, in the last minute here, what do you, what do you want those... 
consumers of the news, right? Do letters to the editor make a difference? Do emails ask some questions? Do they do they matter? Do you pay attention to that? Most journalists do pay attention to criticism. But as I found in corporate media, you know, you can write a scathing article about the New York Times, about the NPR, about any of these outlets, and they don't seem to care. You can point out the fact that they made up facts. You can point out the fact that they misrepresent reality. They don't seem to care. There don't seem to be any incentives for them to actually get better at reporting. Uh, So I I do think that... it's important to make your voice heard. If you feel strongly about something, send a letter to your editor. Uh, if you feel strongly about something, write about it, post about it. Uh, but I don't know if that's the solution. I think the best thing that uh, average readers can do is to put their money and energy towards independent media outlets they can trust, and that are critical, and that have a, a good handle on reality. Oh, Ari Blumkatz, last, last 30 seconds. What do you need us to I mean, do? I mean, I think that's spot on. I think, it, we, you know, one of the things that folks can do right now um, really is support independent media. And there's a few outlets that, you know, I'd like to uh, take a second to name that are doing really heroic work right now. Um, you know, there's Prism, there's Jewish Current, there's a great podcast uh, called Unsettled uh, right now. There's Scalawag. Uh, there's N plus one, there's Truth Out, there's the Real News Network. Um, there are so many independent uh, media outlets right now that really need our support and really need uh, our uh, ability to uplift the stories and the work that they're doing in this moment. And, you know, at the end of the day, as, you know, my colleague just mentioned here, you know, that's the way you really you know, work at getting at corporate media is that, you know, writing letters better and things like that, you know, that's all great. But really, these are capitalist enterprises. And the thing that speaks to them most is withholding your money and using that money elsewhere. Um, That's, you know, some of the only stuff that these folks listen to. Talk about more of this because you go to war on this. Yeah, your wife, your husband, your partner, your children, on the stories that are told. Think about that. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show. Wanted you to see us at, we want to be with you at this Peace Summit at Rainbow Push at 930 50th Street on Friday and Saturday. Cornell West will be speaking on, as will Nina Turner and so many people. you got to be there. Back in just a moment on the Santita Jackson Show. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It is a joy to be with you today, Tuesday, January 9th, uh, 2024. The Peace Summit at Rainbow Push. Well, you don't want to miss Cornell West on Friday. State, State Senator Nina Turner and so many others and hundreds of people who've already called in. They've gone to rainbowpush.org. They called us at 773-FREEDOM. They want to be there. They will be there in person and in virtual, but a lot of people are coming in person. We hope that you will, too. Uh, so that we can talk about 
the path to peace and justice in the Middle East. Because we can solve this conflict, we can solve all others. So call us at 773-FREEDOM today or go to RadioPush.org. You just need to show up. Just show up on Friday. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. We're talking about this practice. Um, CNN has admitted to what some people are calling a disturbing practice um, in which they... Their stories are vetted by the IDF and the Israeli government. Let me think about that, everybody. Now, we did this during the Iraq invasion. So don't think that this is particular to Israel. No, the powerful are doing this. But how does that impact you? You're not getting the story. You're not getting the story. Call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. And this is happening. This is, CNN has raised no objections to this. And we're supposed to have a free press? Hmm. Call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. And um, we're going to speak to you today. Mama D, you are going to be coming up in a hot second. Michigan won the college football championship last night. That's right. That's what you were waiting for, Pastor. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You were popping that popcorn, weren't you, last night, uh, Todd Yeary? Yes. He said, this is what I want to do in the midst of everything else. That's all he wanted to do was see this. And were you happy with the game, Pastor? It was, it was a wonderful game. All right. The top-ranked Wolverines capped an undefeated season with a 34-13 victory over the number 2 Washington Huskies last night. The win gives Michigan its first national championship since 1997. Go Wolverines! Donald Trump will attend a court hearing today on his January 6th immunity claims. He argues that a former president cannot be prosecuted for actions that took place while in office. His appearance at the appeals court is voluntary and strategic. If Trump succeeds, it could bar prosecutors from charging him for his role in the 2021 January 6th attack. What's going to happen? United Airlines found loose bolts on its grounding, grounded Boeing jet, the 737 MAX 9 jet. Wow. Over 100 Alaska and United planes are being expected after a terrifying midair blowout last week. Some of the boats need to get this, everybody, additional tightening. We will see where this investigation goes. A dangerous storm is sweeping the nation. The system is moving from the plains into central and eastern states. It could deliver blizzards, flooding, and strong winds today. Check your city's forecast, everybody. An explosion injured at least 21 people in a Fort Worth hotel. Bottled water contains thousands of tiny pieces of plastic. You need to know that. Be careful, everybody. Call us at 773-763-9278. Let us know what you think about that. In Chicago, we're going to have a high of 36 degrees, rain and snow. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 30 degrees. It will be cloudy. The wild card season begins in the NFL this weekend. In the NBA, the Bulls 119, the Hornets 113. The Timberwolves will be playing the Magic tonight. The Oilers will be playing Chicago. And guess what? The Wild is shut out by the Stars. The Stars 4, the Wild, nothing. And those are some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. Do we have a free press, yes or no? Mm. Well, that's something we need to talk about. And what do we do with the information that we're getting? John Nichols will be, will be joining us at the bottom of the hour, but we've got Dr. David Gibbs, professor of history, 
University of Arizona. Bryce Green, writer for Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting. Ari Bloomcast, executive editor for NBC Times Magazine. I urge you to support that magazine. They're the best in independent media. And Reverend Dr. Todd Geary, National Leadership Team of Rainbow Push and Senior Pastor of the Iconic Douglas Memorial Community Church in Baltimore. Marley Hartenstein of If Not Now Chicago and Evanston Fight for Black Lives. I want you to stay right there because Mama D has been holding. Mama D, very quickly, what's your question or comment? Well, how are you? Greetings to you. You know, uh, freedom... The, the freedom uh, to peacefully assemble and freedom of the press is in the Bill of Rights. Yet, during the American Civil Rights Renaissance of the 1960s, journalists and media was told not to cover the marches. Now, my question is, the Democratic Convention is coming to Chicago. Do you think media will be told not to cover the truth and bridges will be raised to block peaceful protests? Hmm. Yes. Molly, what do you think? I've been thinking about this a lot, um, especially since um, the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago is so memorable, right, for similar reasons. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. I think that um, there is, around this issue specifically, and around the issue of all kinds of work, you pointed out, Santita was bringing up what the censorship of of reporting in Iraq as well, um, there's a vested interest to shut down um, free speech and protest around these issues. Um, and yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me. I hope it doesn't happen. Um, and I'm looking forward to taking advantage of the fact that, you know, the most important members of the Democratic Party will be in Chicago this summer. Um, but I can't say what it would look like or what the response from the city or state government would look like either. I Strangers Molly react. Because we saw, you know, of course, during many of the protests post-George Floyd, the height of the pandemic, this is why Mamadi, I'm sure, is asking this question. Plus, having been a veteran of the civil rights movement, having been an activist herself, we've seen uh, press freedom. Well, we, we, we have, those of us who come from the civil rights movement, we've seen all this before. This is not new, right? It isn't new. So how do you think people will react, particularly at this time, when there is so much mistrust of institutions, Molly? Um, I don't know. I think I think people are opening their eyes to the fact that censorship that you pointed out is very, very real. Um, I think that people are coming together to be able to name that and and face uh, and find alternatives. When, like in these times, um, like different organizations and different news outlets that are actually doing the work to be clear and to be precise and accurate in their reporting, um, to know that in every piece of mainstream media, there's going to be a paragraph about what the Hamas massacres look like and that the death toll will be preceded, the death toll in Gaza will be preceded by Hamas run military, um, like to me, and I think a lot of other people has signaled that this is not just cut and dry, right? There are vested interests here. Mm-hmm. And that is coming not just from the media, but it's coming from the government, right? Let's not forget that the president and that people in the United States government also cast out on the official death toll in Gaza in October, but all the way through until today. And so when we keep that in mind, I think people are starting to realize that we have to build alternative systems of media 
and of information gathering um, and that people are currently doing that um, and that there's been really great reporting coming out of places um, like in these times, like Common Dreams and other news outlets that are doing the work to point out what should be happening. And I think it's also becoming abundantly clear that within Palestine, within Gaza and within Palestine, um, to report on the news is something dangerous right now, which indicates that yeah. if the you know if the Israeli government, Israeli military, is targeting journalists, which it seems like they've been doing um, for years, uh, then that points out to people who pay attention that this is not free and fair press. Mm. But um, mm, we've been here before. And here we are again. Well, good morning, Sandita, to uh, my colleagues. We we have been here before. Um, and this is just the updated version of a plot that continues to unravel. Um, as, as I was listening to the response to Mama D, the, the importance of, of independent uh, perspectives and accuracy around telling the story, it took me back, actually, to 2015 and the death of Freddie Gray. In the aftermath of, of his uh, death, his killing, um, at the hands of police, and the disruption, the eruption that occurred after his funeral, uh, which actually uh, Reverend Jackson attended the funeral that day. I was with him that afternoon as things began to um, uh, to to take 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 shape, if you will, uh, that afternoon. What we would notice is a few days later when a curfew had been put in place, whether we agreed with the curfew or not, at the time the curfew would happen, you would see something curious occur as the hour for the live shots, the, the, the scheduled news uh, would be coming upon us, that the media would begin uh, to uh, entice even... Um, uh, uh, probably coerce uh, folks to violate the curfew order against their interests because they needed a live shot. They weren't really concerned with telling the story. They were concerned with holding an audience for the purposes of selling their ad time. We have to remember uh, that this is, this is a transactional conversation. This is how you get folks to buy the space on the time to get to a particular demographic. And if you cannot hold your demographic by any means, uh, necessary almost, if you will, even if it is deceptive in terms of how it's framed, then it creates this rather sinister uh, transactional process of how do I make money at the expense of not only manipulating the people but distorting the story. And so we've got to go back and make sure that we've got independent journalists embedded in the space to hold uh, the corporate media accountable. Because when you have this transaction, you are actually selling and framing the story to the highest bidder. And we have become paralyzed and intoxicated by this kind of to the highest bidder process of uh, supposedly telling news. The other thing is, is international media outlets do not find themselves in that same process at times. And so it helps to make sure that we not only check what's being told about us from within, but also confirm what's being told about us from without and make sure that independent journalists actually hold everybody accountable because how many times have we seen 
that it was the independent journalists that actually got the story so that we could make sure that we were on the right side of history. That's an important piece that we cannot lose sight of. Whatever may happen today, later on in the summer when we get to the convention, all of that's going to be in play. And we've got to make sure that we do everything we can to protect independent, uh, credible journalism in this country and around the world. Well, I mean, Bryce, the United Nations is being asked to intervene and oversee the safety of these journalists who've been killed who've not been embedded. I mean, you have to, you can't get into Gaza unless you're embedded with the IDF. I mean, how, how, how do we get out of this? How is this all supposed well, to work? Well, the only way out of this has been and remains to be for the U.S. to withdraw its diplomatic, political, and economic support for Israel. Uh, the United Nations, uh, you know, as a body, is largely, uh, you know, sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. If you look at the General Assembly votes uh, in favor of a just solution to the Palestinian question, in favor of Palestinian statehood for the uh, uh, the implementation of international law, uh, every year, overwhelmingly, the rest of the world votes on it and says, yes, we are in favor of a solution here. And every year, uh, two countries and their proxies, uh, they vote no. And that is America and Israel and uh, a few uh, you know, South Asian islands or uh, Pacific islands. Uh, no one in the world is, as, is standing in the way of a solution the way Israel and America is. And the same goes for the uh, ongoing case of genocide uh, brought by South Africa against Israel. Uh, the, IC, uh, the ICJ, the body of the UN that is uh, uh, in charge of uh, the legal proceedings of the body, uh, well, they uh, are taking up this case of genocide. But they can't do anything about it, even if they find that Israel is committing a genocide. They can't do anything about it unless the U.N. Security Council uh, acts. And the U.N. Security Council can't act without the United States. So that's an international body that's been pretty captured by America. And you've seen the, uh, the U.S. standing by as this attack on journalists intensifies. In fact, a few days ago, Anthony Blinken, he offered his sympathy to uh, an Al Jazeera journalist, uh, Wild Dadu, who has undergone some of the most horrific punishment from Israel. They killed his colleagues. They killed his wife. They killed his children. And a few days ago, they killed his other child. And so Anthony Blinken, who is bankrolling all this murdering, he decides to say, well, we're deeply sorry uh, for this, and we, we express our deepest sympathies. It's extremely cynical what they're doing here. Uh, but the attack on journalists is a result of the American support for Israel. There's no stopping it without stopping that American support or some uh, larger force beyond the control of the U.S. and Israel, which I don't anticipate. Uh, the fact is that we here in America, here in the Imperial Corps, we hold a lot of cards in our hand. So every time we uh, decide to go protest, to to shout down Joe Biden at an event, to put up posters, to march through the streets, uh, that's, that's our level of resistance. That's what the people listening here right now should take to heart. Uh, resistance has to come here. There is no savior. Uh, we do have, like, the Houthis who are 
uh, one of the only people in the world doing something about this by blockading the Red Sea, by preventing uh, Israel's economy from uh, behaving as normal. But other than that, the only way to change things is from inside of America. Uh, that that should animate what we how how we go forward in the future. Well, Reverend Dr. Yuri, how do we do that when President Biden goes to one of the iconic black churches um, and gives a speech talking about racism and that stuff? And you have some protesters, some demonstrators, Americans ostensibly, who say, "Okay, you know, ceasefire now." And the audience in the black church that's shouting back four more years. Reverend Dr. Heary, hello. Well, it, it helps to, to frame the, the stakes. The stakes are high. That when, uh, when you find yourself trapped within the system that is supposed to inform you but is really exploiting you, uh, you, you gotta, you gotta know that you're in, a, you're in a predicament. And the other part is that I have to remember now when we talk about corporate media, probably the most uh, entrenched corporate media outlet is the United States government. When yeah. we think about the federal budget, every agency has its own communication shop. It always has someone that's vetting and confirming the messaging, and it is that message that is actually listened for and listened to by other corporate media to make sure that it is not only regurgitated but recycled and repackaged over and over and over again. And so what you have is this collusion between the government and uh, the extensions of government media uh, to be able to tell the story because at the end of the day, the media frame the issues. They do not tell the story. They tell the version of the story that they want the people to respond to, that they want the advertisers to buy into. And if by chance you happen to get truth out of that transaction, then so be it. But if you don't, then so be it. This is not about truth. This is about producing a predictable outcome by framing a narrative that achieves an end that is controlled by a very insular process. And if it happens to benefit the people, then fine. But if it doesn't, then that's fine too. That's the problem. And it's a very dangerous problem that we must confront. Well, I mean, Molly, I've got less than a minute here. Is it collusion or is it conflation? What's happening here? I think it's collusion. I think that becomes clear when you realize that the same set of tactics being deployed over and over again. It's really hard for this to not be collusion um, when it is evident that everybody involved has a vested interest in the way that things are playing out. That the U.S. government sends $4.8 billion to Israel every year means that they have a vested interest in ensuring that the system in place continues and that Israeli dominance of the narrative, in addition to the situation on the ground, um, is perpetuated. Mm. Well, we'll see where all of this is going to go. Let's talk about this peace summit, everybody. Uh, hope that you will be there on Friday. You don't want to miss it. We're going to be talking about these issues and so many more. In person. 930 50th Street. Can't wait to have you there, everybody. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about this disturbing, uh, this disturbing practice of 
getting the news vetted by Israel, by IDF, or any government, quite frankly, before it gets to you. That's what the corporate media are doing. Let's talk about it on the San Peter Jackson Show. Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest breakfast talk radio station at AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. We're talking about Peace in the Middle East, this peace summit that's going to be held at Rainbow Push. Uh, you've got Jim Zogby, you've got uh, Dr. Cornell West, who will be speaking on Friday, Senator, State Senator Nina Turner. A lot of people are coming in from all around the country, and quite frankly, all around the world. They'll be attending virtually, but what's so special about this is that people will be coming to attend in person, and that is very, very exciting. People want to see one another, and um, it's going to be great. You don't want to miss it on Friday and on Saturday all day. And um, it's going to be great. So it's going to be something special. Call us at 773-FREEDOM at the Rainbow Push headquarters, 773-FREEDOM, so that you can get more information. Or go to rainbowpush.org. Don't want to miss it. Of course, it is time to talk with John Nichols. John Nichols is surrounded by this panel today because we've got a lot of people who are going to be part of this Peace Summit. A lot of people are very interested in it. 11% of the U.S. Congress has signed on to a ceasefire resolution, but more than 60% of Americans want a ceasefire. And yet the Biden administration has bypassed Congress two times, two times, to send money, uh, monies and munitions to Israel that we don't, the American public don't want them to do without strings attached. So, hey, there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of work for us to do. As the theme song of Rainbow Push, written by the great James Cleveland, said, the push is on, there's work for us to do, and the job is up to you. Call us at 773-FREEDOM, 773-FREEDOM, before we pivot to you, uh, John Nichols. Bryce Green of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, you, of course, are in school as well. And um, But you've got to leave us. But what thought do you want to leave us with? Well, it's difficult every morning to wake up and hear horror stories of massacres that have happened uh, in Gaza. And it's difficult to keep going and pretend like uh, they're uh, and pretend like it's not happening and to live your life like uh, like things are normal and to go about your day with knowing that this is going on in the background. And it can be difficult for people to uh, to know that there is something that they can do, that there is a way that they can make sense of the world and change it. And that is through independent media. And that is through organizing, through activism. There is no way out of our current problems, be it Gaza, be it healthcare, be it the empire, be it Trump, democracy. There's no way out of these things if we sit down and expect people to solve our problems for us. You have to get out there. You have to join an organization. You have to go uh, show up to meetings. You have to protest. You have to educate yourself. There's nothing passive about it. If you ever want to live in a world or if you ever want your kids to live in a world that's 
safe and secure, that's reasonable and rational, well, then you're going to have to fight for it. And, uh, you know, that's the biggest lesson I've learned in my short time on this planet. Uh, but it does, it keeps, it gets me going. It keeps me going uh, throughout all of this stuff. I'm a uh, organizer on campus for, uh, for Palestine. And, you know, right now they just banned, they just suspended our professor, who our faculty advisor, who also happens to be teaching the Palestine course. And they suspended him over paperwork that he didn't fill out paperwork properly, and therefore he's a bad influence on us. Uh, these are the fights that we have to fight if we want to create a, a just and equitable world. Uh, we'll be uh, you know, putting on events, we'll be protesting, marching, uh, and hopefully we'll be sending people in the world with the skills uh, to continue protesting, marching, and organizing to make the world a better place. And if there's one thing I leave you with, it's I encourage you, the listener, to go out and do that. If you ever feel uh, uh, useless or you feel like there's too much going on in the world, you feel like you're, you're powerless, uh, don't believe it for a second. Get out there and exercise your power. Hmm. Will your professor be reinstated? What's, what's his status or her status? Right now, he is suspended from teaching for the next semester. Uh, they made this decision a, a short a week or two before the semester started. And uh, and he's also suspended for a year from advising students. Uh, we don't quite know what that means, but I've been in contact with his lawyer, and it seems that the university followed the incorrect practices, not that they care. Um, and uh, they're doing this, uh, obviously, to you know, crack down on pro-Palestinian speech. There's very clear indications that the administration has been hostile towards Palestinian activism for quite some time. It seems that recently they just banned an art exhibit from a Palestinian. Um, they're hassling our group. Uh, they are, uh, the, the president even refused to even offer condolences to Palestinian students and basically laughed at them when they uh, asked for her to make a statement about it. It's pretty bad. It's not It's not as bad as, you know, Harvard University, where they have that truck with all the activists' faces on it calling them anti-Semites. But, I mean, it's indicative of broader trends around the country where educational uh, organizations, news organizations, and civil, civil organizations are all cracking down on pro-Palestinian activism. Uh, one thing that does give me hope in this is, uh, and this has been reported a lot in Indies Times magazine, is the labor movement support for Palestine. And we're seeing uh, massive shifts in the labor movement on its own rights, but also uh, the internationalization of uh, labor politics, uh, which is helpful. Uh, but I see my place as helping to further those fights in my uh, on my campus in the ways that I can. And we can all do something. That's the important part, and which is why we are gathering people, PhDs and NODs, as Reverend Jackson has been saying down through the years, uh, John Mickle and Dr. Mm -hmm. David Gibbs. And thank you so much, Bryce, for being with us today. Can't wait to have you on this week once again. Uh, Reverend Dr. Todd Yuri, Marley Hartstein from If Not Now. Um, Ari Bloomcats, executive editor, giving you a big shout-out. Um, and let me give a big shout-out to my engineer, Alex Castaneda. You know, we don't get paid a lot of money for the work that we do. In fact, I don't get paid. This is, this is a show that I own, so I have to go out and get uh, sponsors. Uh, but, you know, he shows up early in the morning. Devin Andrakis does. Henry Edwards does. Um, and... 
I just want to give you all, let you know how much I appreciate all that you do uh, at WCBT and AM 950 Radio. Just thank you, thank you, thank you, Alex. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you do. Because without you, we wouldn't have a broadcast. And, and I'm so clear. Thank you, Ms. Jackson. And Mike Mercado. Oh, no, you're very welcome. And Mike Mercado, who steps in as he's running all these other stations. And, and you know, when we're trying to figure it out. And, and, and Mark Pinsky and, and, and Matt Cummings and, and Melissa and Steve Lessman and, oh, my goodness, just Vidalia just, and, and, my, and my colleague Joan Esposito and Patty Vasquez just sending all of you so much love today. Um, now, you see what's happening. It's not just happening at Harvard, John Nichols and Dr. <laughs> David Gibbs. Dr. Gibbs, do you still have your job? I'm not joking. Uh, yeah, yeah. I do have my job, yes. I, I've, I've been um, much more careful in what I say in class than ever before. I'll have to say that. Last few years in general, I've been much more careful. Um, and so I, I think that uh, this is not a great time for free speech on American campuses or more broadly. Uh, I will say that one of the optimistic, I don't know if this is a source of optimism, I mean, that's the wrong word, but... One thing that will probably change over time, American public opinion, you're already seeing this, is facts on the ground. You really can't hide the fact that Israel has killed over 22,000 people, including a very large number of civilians and children. You can't hide that fact altogether. Uh, There's a limit to how much you can hide these things. Eventually, the facts do seep out. And if the facts do seep out, people do change their minds. And I think that's happening already. And so I think basically, as I would see it, the things like the, the CNN collaborating with the uh, Israeli Defense Forces and so on in the most disgraceful way, I, I see that as really a failing effort uh, in the sense it's a little bit like the Dutch boy with the finger in the dike. Eventually, the dike will break. Uh, that's happening already. And so I, I, I do see the situation changing as the facts become unavoidable and the public becomes aware of the facts. So I think that is a, a basic feature we're dealing with here. Um, but in any case, I have to go get ready for my classes. So um, thank you, Sentita, and have a good day. How you doing? I'm not sure where we're at uh, one way or the other, but I'm glad to, to hear all your voices and, and glad that we're talking about the summit. The, the summit's important. You know, in, in the history of anti-war activism and peace activism around the world, um, there have often been these moments. And, and I think we lose sight of the fact that there are those points where activists gather. They come together in person with one another, sometimes also now in this modern age with Zoom and other tools. But they come together to reinforce one another, to say, look, you're not out there on your own. You're not, you know, in some isolated grouping. You're part of something that is very big and that is infused with a great deal of thought, a great deal of of consideration, and frankly, a, a vision for where to go forward. And that's what the summit really does. It's going to bring together a tremendous number of people with many different perspectives who are going to talk about how to get to peace in the Middle East, how to first and foremost get to a ceasefire in Gaza, which is essential, Uh, but not to stop there, to then look at how do you take the next steps that assure that we never end up in this place again, that we actually move toward justice. So peace and justice, the old equation of Dr. King. And I think it's very striking that um, the summit is occurring 
at the beginning of the, the weekend in which we, we celebrate the King holiday, the King holiday being January 15th. But as we all know, it, it's become something of a King week or even longer where there's a great deal of recognition. And as I've been thinking about the summit, I've been thinking about Dr. King's speech at Riverside Church in 1967, almost to the day, a year before he died, um, in which he gathered uh, with many, many people um, to speak about peace in Vietnam. And that speech that Dr. King gave at Riverside Church was part of a broader gathering, a broader discussion of how do you move the peace movement forward? And here you have a figure like Dr. King recognizing that, you know, you don't just do it on your own. You don't just go out and, you know, speak at this rally or that rally. Sometimes you have to gather together with folks and make a plan for going forward. I think that that's what Jesse Jackson, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, in the spirit of Dr. King, with whom he works so closely, has has done in in really calling this summit into being and in working so closely with Jim Zogby. And the last thing I'll say is that I know that in this conversation there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, how hopeful to be or how discouraged to be. And one thing I will suggest is that when the summit comes into being, when it comes to, when it kicks off, listen to Jim Zogby, because Jim Zogby, Dr. Zogby, will talk about the fact that not that many years ago, when he gathered activists for peace and justice in Palestine, in the Middle East, um, when he did that, you would have just a few dozen people sometimes outside the White House, a, a small group. Um, and it was very hard to get a hearing, very hard to, to be taken seriously. Now we see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people across the country and around the world speaking up on these issues, influencing Congress. And I think that, that if we see that long arc of history, what we realize is that, that of course, it's bending toward justice. And, of course, there is progress. It's not as fast as we would like. It's not as, as urgent as it should be, as it needs to be. But we do need to recognize there is progress. That is something to celebrate, but not to spend too much time celebrating. We celebrate the fact that we are moving forward. We recognize we have not moved far enough forward. We have not done enough. This is an urgent moment. And I think the summit brings that all together. Well, you know what, Dan? Peter Jackson is back. Hello. Yay. I was getting ready to catch the bus. You got that. Just Holy water. Thank you. But at least you know. Me too. I kept calling and I was like, can someone answer? Help me. Help me. Oh, my goodness. But you know what? Why is it important? And I, I don't know where you were because I was, I've was i been trying to get back on the air. Why is it important for us to meet with each other at this time? Um, I think it would have been a very different world um, had I not met you, John. I didn't meet you virtually, sure. right? I mean, we ended up having to work together and stay in hotel rooms together and um, and eat out of the same chicken bucket, literally. Because, you know, we have no money in, in the Jackson campaigns, but what did Reverend Jackson say? Poor campaign, rich message. And I kind of yes. get the feeling that we're going to have this moment again on Friday and Saturday. I think it's it can be a continuation and maybe a coming together that uh, a coming together that people really, really need in this moment. I mean, 11% of... The U.S. House of Representatives has signed on to the ceasefire resolution. More than 60% of Americans want it, but 
because of big money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they, the Congress won't touch it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And look, this is nothing new, right? This is this is something we understand. And it can be dispiriting and disempowering. Look, it, when you know that the polls show a majority of people want to move toward a ceasefire, they want to move toward peace and justice, um, when we see it in the streets, when we see great demonstrations, when we, we see all this energy, it's very frustrating because Congress isn't connected, right? That it somehow isn't responding. I did an interview the other day with Rashida Tlaib, uh, the congresswoman from Michigan who's been such a leader on ceasefire issues. And she said, you know, look, the, the Congress just doesn't get it, you know, and, and she's hoping that after the, the holiday break, many members will come back having heard from their constituents and open up on these issues. But it's frustrating. And so in that frustration, um, you can either fester in it, right? You can you can feel like, oh, you know, boy, this isn't moving as fast as it should. This isn't it isn't what it should be, and that's true. But there's a power in coming together with other folks when you're in a, a room full of people who share your values, share your ideals, and yes, maybe don't have all the resources, maybe don't have all the power, but you know, a you're not alone. But something much, I think, more important than that, you know that you are a part of a of a, of a community, a community rooted in deep values, spiritual values, political values, ideological values, human values. And as these people come together, they may not always agree on everything, right? They may have, you know, some distinction here or difference there. But at the heart of it will be an understanding that it's time to stop the killing. It's time to stop the violence. And that shared commitment when you do it, when you come to it, when you discuss it with a group of people, I think it's very empowering. And yes, I think that's, you know, when I think back to the Jackson campaign, when I think back to so many campaigns over the years, what I can tell you is that the big turn, the turn toward what ultimately was success, often came when people gathered in a summit like this and said, where are we at? How do we get here? And where do we go next? To me, my vision, my thought is, that as the summit gathers on Friday and Saturday in Chicago, um, which would be, by the way, a very snowy Friday and Saturday, I think. Um, but as we gather in this, in this moment, um, what I think it will be the most important part will be that those conclusions, right? The where do we go from here discussions? Because you don't want to just come together and talk about what you've done. You want to come together and talk about what you will do. Well, um, pardon me, but I think Molly. Uh, I think that even with the snow and the inclement weather, because we are expecting like blizzard-like conditions, I think that people oh, yeah. want to come out. Oh yeah, yeah, we are. But well, come, come on, we're hardy Midwesterners. We can take it. Come on, John, Molly, what? Oh. So, look, I, before let Molly come in here too, but I, I would just say that you know. I'll, I'll have to come from Madison, which is, you know, we've got to come through a little bit of snow. And, uh, and, and it's not the first time. Most of us, most of us have had to travel through something. And, and in a way, I do think, you know, when you have it in a inclement weather, a difficult moment, it's a reminder of how much it matters to us, right? It's a reminder that, yeah, we're willing to, we're willing to overcome a little something because we know that there are people in the world who are suffering through horrific, horrific experiences. And the fact that we have to go through a little snow, come on, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's good. It's good that we should, that we should get up early, you know, 
come come as quick as we can. Be there with the with our friends. Be there with our allies, and and recognize that that out of this comes something very good and very strong. Well, absolutely. I mean, Molly, I, I you know I think that people are still really inclined to come on out. What do you think, Molly? Yeah, I'm very very excited. I think the two things I wanted to add. Um, the first is that yesterday, over 300 people were arrested in New York um, as part of an action coordinated by the Palestinian Youth Movement and by Jewish Voice for Peace New York. And their whole point was to shut down three bridges in a tunnel in lower Manhattan and to indicate to people, you're upset by your inability to travel here or you feel like you can't leave Manhattan. This is how all the people in Gaza feel for the last 90 days, right? And so this idea of limitations on our movement um, like that you were just saying, like it is ind- indicative of um, the blockade on Gaza that's been going on for over a decade. Right. And so I think one, it shows how much we care, but two, it shows how much like we um, can stand in solidarity with people. The other thing I wanted to say is that I'm very excited uh, to be there on Friday and specifically in the afternoon um, from 4.30 to 5.30, so even if there is a bit of a weather delay, there's a panel um, from Chicago organizers that will have representatives from Jewish Voice for Peace Chicago, if not now Chicago, Tina Collins will be speaking, um, Shoresh Chicago, which is a new organization of anti-Zionist Israelis, um, people who identify Israeli and anti-Zionist, and they will be speaking about like what organizing in Chicago looks like what they've done in the last few months, and the coalitions that we've built here. So I think that's a really exciting opportunity to bridge the gap between the international and the local. Um, and even if you're running a bit late, it's in the afternoon, so hopefully folks can make it. I think that you make a great point, because even if you're running a little late, you know how it is when we start, when we get together, we end up running our mouths talking and looking to get something to eat so we can extend the conversation. I think that's why I'm really encouraging people, Reverend Dr. Todd Geary, Dr. David Gibbs, uh, Avi, I mean, excuse me, Ari, you, you understand that it's something about the energy of getting people together in the room that makes you want to talk with one another. I mean, it's just, I just think it's something really, really, really special. And I mean, and why is it important uh, for us to get the right kind of reporting, Ari, about this particular event? I mean, what do you, I mean, we've been talking about how journalism is embedding themselves with power. That's not what you do, Ari, with Indie Times Magazine. That's kind sense, you know, and yeah, that's not what we do, and that's not what a, you know, a lot of independent media outlets um, do and dedicate ourselves to. You know, one of the things that I wanted to mention is, you know, I wanted to tell, you know, a short story um, about an article from the writer Dylan Saba um, that came out in uh, sort of towards the end of October. And Dylan wrote this article, and the you know headline on it is the mounting onslaught of censorship and suppression. And so we've got an article here about censorship, about the suppression of Palestinian voices, about suppression of articles about Gaza. And you know Dylan was writing this for the Guardian. Um, was commissioned um, to write this by The Guardian. And at the last minute, the article 
was told that the article was killed at the last minute. And it's hard to sort of define the irony of an article about censorship and repression being censored and repressed. Um, and so what the outlet N plus one did and what we did along with it is we, you know, took it and published the piece. But the reason I really bring that up is because, you know, we've been talking about what CNN is up to in uh, in Israel-Palestine right now and, you know, how they're working with the center and how they are hiring folks. But this is what's happening in media right now in the United States. We saw censorship and repression at the Los Angeles Times when they penalized all of those journalists who signed on to a Gaza statement. We've seen, you know, censorship and repression um, at New York Times, New York Magazine. We've seen it everywhere in corporate media in the U.S. as well. And, you know, this is a longstanding, you know, issue with corporate media in the United States. And it's why independent media is so important. It's why John is one of my heroes um, and has been a hero for, you know, such a long time. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that we need independent media. We need to support independent media as much as we possibly can. John Nichols, The Nation magazine, the last minute belongs to you. Well, after such such a wise and, and good statement from my friend at In These Times, I think I'll, I'll simply say, uh, I agree, <laughs> or I share the I share the the sentiments, and uh, and also that that it is so vital. The independent media is vital. It's it's vital because it gets the word out. But coming in person, being there in person, being with other people, then you become your own independent media. You see what's going on. You can go back to your church, your synagogue, your mosque, your community center, your union hall, and you can say to folks, I was at an event last weekend, and boy, did I learn some stuff. Let me tell you about it. And to me, that's the way you build a movement. And so I'm very hopeful for the fact that in these times, in the nation, other folks will be covering what's happening this weekend. But I'm also hopeful for the, for the people who will be there physically to take in the power of this gathering and to then spread it out across their communities in Chicago and across the country. I can't wait. I cannot wait, everybody. It's going to be a great homecoming, and it's going to be a great getting up morning. Cannot wait to see you. On Friday at Rainbow Push at 930 50th Street, sending you much love today, everybody. God bless you.